good show today. What we're going to be covering today is uh, about 15 plants from the Baker Creek catalog. And uh, it was one of those days where I just wanted to do a show for you guys that was a little bit, well, less heavy than some of the things that we talk about. Just some of the kind of fun. It is that time of year. We talked last week about starting seeds, so today we're going to talk about seeds. Uh, I am a seedaholic. I will like, like you know, like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Like, hi, my name is Jack, and I'm a seedaholic. And the difference is, our meeting today, friends and neighbors, will not be designed as a 12-step program or a uh, 20-step program or any number of steps to get out of being a seedaholic. We're actually going to just encourage it today. Um, no matter how hard I fight the addiction, sooner or later, one of my dealers comes back and pulls me back in, right and what I did this year that was probably, economically anyway, a mistake, is when I ordered some new things from Baker Creek, they have an option where you can get the free catalog, which is which is pretty much a book of, of like crack, like pre-ordered crack for drug addicts, right? Or they had this one. This one costs some money. It's 530 plus pages. It is everything that they have in their catalog and I'm going to tell you right now, if you, like me, are a cetaholic, this is probably not a good thing for you. Where am I? I'm a little bit dis, uh, messed up, discombobulated, I guess, starting on a Monday and ending up a little bit late. So I didn't give you the episode. It's episode 3445 of the Survival Podcast, and it's new seeds from the Baker Creek Catalog. Again, I have about 15 queued up for you today. We're going to go through them. The first five I've already committed to growing. Uh, I've ordered them already, and I, I picked them off the website when I you know, decided to add that book to my life. And now I went through the book over the weekend, Dog Earing Pages. i got a whole bunch of stuff for you guys today, and probably half of that I'll put a second order in for. I don't generally plant like this crazy amount of variety every year like I think some people think I do. I have certain things that I know are like my mainstays of my garden. I know we eat them. I know we like them. I know they do well. I've been saving seed for them forever, so I have adapted seeds. There's like your Cubanelle peppers, my jalapeno peppers, and ancho peppers. Like I grow those all the time. Uh, several varieties of tomatoes. Sickle squash, new one from last year, will get regrown this year. Uh, my Indian snake beans, that'll get redone. I always do some form of Chinese noodle, yard long beans, call them what you want. So there's, and, and you know, ping tongue eggplant and all. So all that stuff I'm still growing. And because I'm growing all, you know, Florence fennel, all that stuff, like since I'm I'm going to keep growing that stuff, I only have so much room for new stuff every year, but I like to try new things every year. And my, my view is if I try five, six, seven, eight, ten new things a year, somewhere in that range, and I find one or two that become something that I grow all the time, they, that I discover something new, then it's a win. You know, examples of that you know, over the recent uh, past few years. The... Um, the serpent beans or the Indian snake bean or call them what you want to. Uh, they're just, they've become one of the most fantastic things that I grow in my garden. Going back about five years is when I discovered pink tongue eggplant. I've never seen anything so productive. So that's my goal every year. Fine, you know, sickle squash was a thing from last year, also known as tropical zucchini. I played hell getting seed for it. 
Uh, I got plenty of seed from last year's uh, production that I'll be planting this year, and I need to send some seed out to Florida from a gal. I can't remember her name now, but I had her on the show. She's the one who told me about it, and she was very short on seed herself. So that's my goal every year is to come up with some new amazing stuff, stuff that's just beautiful. Those of you on the audio can't see the picture, uh, but that's a purple galaxy tomato, one of the things that we'll be covering today. Uh, it just it, it, it just makes everything a hell of a lot more fun. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is John Bush with the Freedom Cell Challenge. If you have ever really wanted to grow a community of your own, people that you you could count on, both online and offline, regionally and nationally, then you want to take the Freedom Cell Challenge. You know why? Because John does a great job with everything. In fact, he's going to be a guest on the show tomorrow. We'll be talking more about this than I'm sure, along with some other thing he's stuff he's doing. Uh, but Live Free Academy is just an awesome, awesome organization John's put together. He puts these events together. They're always at least part of them free, so you can check it out. See if you want to, you know, upgrade or whatever. But if you don't, at least participate in the free stuff. It begins on the 19th of February. That's just a few days away, and it runs through the 23rd. Uh, check this stuff out, guys. Really, John does an excellent job. Again, he'll be on tomorrow to talk to you more about all of this. Next up today is the other John, John Pugliano. You know, I want to tell you, the truth is on rare occasions, I actually accidentally send an email that's supposed to be for John Bush to John Pugliano and the other way around. It happens a couple times a year, uh, just because they're the two Johns that I email the most. But John Pugliano, man, he is the guy that you want to check out for his podcast, which is the Wealthsteading Podcast, available at Wealthsteading.com. John is one of us. I first met him in 2010 at a prepper convention in Salt Lake City, Utah. He had not even really formally started his financial uh, investment manager business. He had made himself a liquid millionaire through his own investing, which he felt was important before he invested anybody else's money on their behalf. He's also a prepper. He's a gardener. He's a ham radio operator former Marine. He is one of us guys. He was straight up old school prepper from Western Pennsylvania. He has a lot in common with me and our, our background childhood uh, growing up in that part of the world. Good dude. Definitely check out his podcast. If you're not doing it, you're missing out on an opportunity to really have a better fundamental understanding uh, of economics and investing. And it's something I, you know, I put in kind of one of my core tenets of things that you should be doing, which is always building a better uh, financial IQ. And the more you understand about money, the smarter the decisions you will make with money. And I don't agree with everything Dave Ramsey says. In fact, I could probably write a book on things I disagree with, but there's certain things I do agree with. And one of the things Dave Ramsey says is people that win with money tend to win elsewhere in life. And I, I believe that is the case because if we can master money, we're mastering the flow of energy in our life because money is a form of, of, of energy, it was stored energy. And if we can't control that, which is the obvious energy to control, how can we control energy like our attention? You see what I'm saying? So definitely tune in to John. Start getting control of your finances, your economics, and your economic IQ. With that, let's get into something fun. Let's talk about starting seeds. Well, actually, buying seeds for starting this year. And again, every year, I try to do this to myself. I've pretty much thrown in the towel. I've given up on this. I say to myself around, you know, somewhere around before Christmas, the catalog starts showing up and what have you. And as this stuff shows up in the mailbox, 
Jack, you can grow one or two new things this year. Put the catalog down. Step away from it. Call your sponsor. Relax. Grow the things that you know grow. But as I be, you know, continuously expand space, I have room for more things. And then you know, the crack dealers send you their their propaganda. And next thing you know, you're 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 paging through the beautiful pictures. And oh, I could grow that. I could grow that. I could grow that. And so I've picked a few things out to try this year that I've never done before. But what I do want to reiterate, for all the joking aside, as you become more mature as a gardener, and I don't mean like growing up as a person, I mean as, as you've developed your garden, your technique, your fertility plan, you're having success, you've built up this portfolio of stuff, and you have things that you know your family will eat, that you know you will eat, that you know store, that you know do well in your climate, or with your pest pressure, or things like that, you should totally dedicate most of your efforts to growing the proven track record things that you know work for you, that you can save seed for especially, because that lowers your cost and you begin to develop land races and genetic adaptation and what have you. So please don't think that even though I'm being kind of funny about this, that in any way I think you should stray away from kind of the core of what has been successful for you. Uh, but on the other side of it, if I didn't take this kind of balanced approach, if I didn't try some new things every year, like all the things that I mentioned and, and probably a half a dozen more that I'm forgetting that I grow now, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know about and I wouldn't have made them into the regular production schedule of things that I do. You know, um, I really didn't think fennel would do that great in my climate. It's 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 pretty much cool season crop, but I get plenty of fennel produced in the spring, and then it, the plant kind of limps through, and I cut the bulbs off, and they grow back, and it feeds butterflies, and then I get you know regrowth and and more bulb fennel in the fall, smaller bulbs that grow around. And this year, I've actually had one plant that survived the big freeze, got cut off, and grew back again. So I've got fennel going into its second year now from complete regrowth. Without this approach. I would not have found that. I just would not have found that. So make sure that you are, you know, one, being balanced, but two, being open to trying new things because it's what leads to this. And hopefully I can be a bad example of how not to go out and buy new seeds today. And we can spread the addiction, uh, the crack addict-like compulsion to try new plants every year. I even made a thing one year. It's pretty cool. If you've ever seen the meme where it's the guys from, uh, I think it's American Chopper, and the dad and the son are arguing with each other, and the guy's yelling, and the kid's throwing a chair and all. And it, it's, it's like, you know, I just ordered more seeds. You already have a whole big box of seeds. These are different seeds for different plants, right? Like, there is some fun in this, so let's have fun, but let's not, what I, what I have done, just as a confession, going too far, buy so many seeds that it's not possible to really get them all started for the season, especially the ones that need the early start, and then you have to pick and choose, and then you end up with this package, or three, or four, or five packages of things that are new, that are really things that need to be started in the spring, that get held over the next season. And, the next, and by the time you start them, they're four or five years old. Are they going to germinate? You don't know. So let's try not to do that, but let's have fun trying some new things. Now, let's start off with what we're going to try. So if you are on the audio only... You will miss out a little bit today, but I'm not going to lean on this stuff. What you're really missing is pictures. So the first one that I have for you today is a new tomato. 
It's called Barry's Crazy Cherry Tomato. And what it's a yellow tomato. It's kind of slightly egg-shaped with kind of a point. It's like a cherry tomato, like a large-sized cherry tomato. But what did it for me was like, I got to try this, is there's a picture. It's on your screen right now if you're on the video. just changed. It'll be back. Of a whole, like, where they cut the whole clump of tomatoes off, like in one go. And it looks like, without exaggerating, I got to say there's like 150, 200 tomatoes in that one clump. So it's just this massive, huge yield. Now, I will tell you this. You know, Baker Creek's a good company. They're not deceptive in their marketing at all, but they're, of course, going to put the best picture of the best producing plant that they have at the time that they're doing photography for their catalog, who wouldn't? So will I get that type of productivity? I don't know. That's part of trying things. My view of it is, though, that my tomato production, and I have solved a lot of my problems with the aspirin trick. Thank you again, James White, for that. But my tomato production this year, or over the last few years, has been reliable. By adding aspirin to my cups when I start my seeds... By throwing some aspirin in the hole when I when I transplant the seeds, and by adding some aspirin, like it, acting like they're little fertilizer tablets, about once a month through my season, even though I get some blight, my tomato plants survive. That's why I've started trying some new tomato varieties because I'd given up. Honestly, it wasn't worth it. I'd found a couple wild type tom- uh, tomato seeds like Texas Wild Cherry. They just didn't care about blight. They got it and they just kept growing, but they were really tiny tomatoes. When I started using aspirin, things opened up. Now, the other thing, though, that won't go away. Once it gets hot enough here, we lose production until fall. If I can get some clusters like that for drying and, and, and other ways that you preserve tomatoes out of a couple plants like that, I all the tomatoes for all that Darth season of, 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 of the hot part of summer that I will ever need. How good are they? I don't know. I haven't grown any yet. You know, We'll have to try them, but... In general, I found the tomatoes that have kind of this yellow, waxy color are pretty damn tasty, and it will be something different. I also tried to do something with some of the things I'm trialing this year, and uh, here's a picture of somebody that grew them at home and what their production is, and there's some red ones in there. I have a feeling those are a different variety, though. But, you know, I also read the reviews, but one of the things that I'm always thinking about when it comes to these shows about featuring these different plants and all, I know that some of you guys are actually doing market gardening. You're doing, you know, the uh, the farmers market stuff. You're doing, uh, you know, uh, you have some level of a customer base. This looks like a really unique and super productive crop for that type of grower. So if you're doing like a home garden like me and all, this would be a good to go thing. But if you are doing kind of a market garden. Uh, you're doing the farmer's markets, you're doing anything like that. What a great uh, item to consider. So as I'm going through this stuff today, just realize that I am thinking about more than just what to grow for myself, and that is one of the plants that I think would be great for that. Next up today is a new sweet pepper. Now, I, I grow probably more peppers than anything else that I grow. I don't know if I grow more poundage because some of the plants like the uh, the the Italian eggplants uh, those those just get huge, right? So you might get one of those that's nine pounds or something. But when it comes to the number of plants that go in the ground, 
I grow more peppers than anything. We eat peppers like crazy, hot, sweet, etc. So I'm always on the lookout for really great sweet peppers because my my wife honestly prefers sweet to hot peppers. Uh, these uh, Ozark Giants look to live up to their name. They're a huge pepper. They get a deep red color, almost black at full maturity. And, uh, you know, we'll see how they do. They're, they are larger in general than like California Wonder, which is kind of the standard uh, for sweet peppers. A lot of the people in the reviews say that they're bigger, sweeter, better tasting than anything you can buy in the store, including like Whole Foods and Organic. So this is not really a big special one other than it's just a really big four-lobed bell pepper. And so I won't spend a lot of time on it. I do want to remind you guys as we're, as we're going through this today in the comments section, if you are going to ask me a question today, if you're going to ask me a question, make sure that you do it like this. The first couple words or the word question in all caps and then ask me the question. The black strawberry tomatoes, I did not try, but we may actually be talking about those here in just a bit. But if you want to ask me a question, all caps is going to be absolutely critical while I'm flipping between screens and things like that and trying to stay up with you guys. So, again, the Ozark uh, uh, Jumbo uh, Peppers, those look like they're going to be really cool. But again, I haven't grown hardly any of the things that we're going to talk about yet today. Next up is a Swiss chard. This is a new Swiss chard that Baker Creek has out. Um, it's called Vulcan, and it's a rhubarb-style chard. Now, I always have to explain to my wife, rhubarb chard doesn't mean it's rhubarb. It's, it's not related to rhubarb in any way. It, it's a member of the beet family. It looks like rhubarb ribs, and that's what they call it. That. It's an incredibly bright red Swiss chard. It's a new variety. I have found, for me... That red varieties of chard have not done as well for me. I usually end up buying like the five color silver beet where they have the gold, the red, the white, and the you know the green stock, and I will plant all of them, and I will end up with very few red that germinate out of those packets. By the way, and two, my red ones don't do that great. I'm gonna give this a shot, even though it was bred in Switzerland, and it may not appreciate Texas heat. I think that it might do well, and I'm going to give it a shot. And again, shard tends to survive our summers and come back in the fall really strong when the weather cools off anyway. But back to the fact that some of you folks are doing kind of the market garden thing. I, I really, um, I'm hearing that the stream is garbled, but only from one person. So until I hear from somebody else... I'm going to assume the rest of you guys hear me uh, just fine. I'm going to do one little electronic repurposing thing here. If anybody else has bad stream quality, let me know. Because if it's one person, there's nothing that I can do about that. Anyway, you guys that have market gardens, customer bases, etc. This bright red color is probably something to look into. What I have found in... Um, everything out there I don't really understand what John John Willis from SOE's here and it's not I don't really understand what he's trying to type in he's got some garbled himself I think he says streams great on YouTube okay anyway um, so if you have bright colors they sell well if you are doing um, what's it called now it's, it's just out of my brain where you 
uh, you take the money in advance and then you have like shares in your vegetables. I don't know why that won't come to me right now. But when people get stuff like this in their you know weekly or biweekly box, it tends to go a long way toward making them feel like they are getting something that they can't get anywhere else, that they can't go to the store and get. And I know there's red varieties of chard in the stores, but it doesn't look like that, does it? So this is one I really... Uh, CSA, thank you, Food Forest Farm. Damn it, why wouldn't that come to me? That's community-supported uh, agriculture. Uh, if you guys haven't heard it before, a lot of growers, especially market garden-skilled growers, will have customers that say a share for the production from spring through fall is X dollars. And each week... You get whatever you know portion of the production from that week or every other week, depending on how you do it. So any of you guys in kind of that business model, I think this would do fantastic uh, in that market. Assuming that it grows well, I don't think I'll have any problems with it, but we'll see how it does in my summer. It may be, again, one of those plants that kind of comes back in winter uh, and really shows itself for what it can be. The next one I am a little skeptical on, but it's why I ordered it, and I'm going to grow it, and I'm going to see if there's really a difference, because Baker Creek says there is a difference, and usually when they say there's a difference, there is. It's a cucumber uh, called Indian Snake. Now, it's not a cucumber. It is a melon, uh, similar to Armenian Snake Melon, but specifically they state um, in their write-up that it is delicious raw or cooked in curries it's bigger and less bitter than armenian cucumber thrives in hot weather weather and you definitely want to trellis it and i would tell you anything that produces a gourd or a fruit that's elongated like this if you if you can use vertical growing there's there's a lot of reasons for that let's do a little bit of a permaculture lesson uh in the middle here as well so um the first thing is that anything that we can grow vertical, we probably should. And the reason is that we increase the surface area that we can grow production on. So if I have cucumbers and they fill up an entire garden bed, I have a bed full of cucumbers. If I have a bed with a trellis across the back of it growing cucumber and I take all the cucumber and train it up the trellis, I still have almost the entire bed to grow other things. So that is using edges and valuing the marginal. That's one of Holgram's 12 permaculture principles. And it's one we should all think about. And in the course that's almost done, because I thought I was going to get it finished this weekend and I didn't, uh, but the course that's almost done is going to be free at Home Food Systems on principle-based design, I refer to vertical growing as a high expression of that principle. But the other reason is look at the fruit. If you grow that on the ground, you have a propensity as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger for where it contacts the soil for it to rot, get flat spots, and be not so nice. But you're also not going to get those long, straight fruits that are much easier to utilize. Because this would make a fantastic pickle, by the way. Probably one or two of them would fill several quarts if you let them grow to full size. So I'm going to give this a shot. To me, it looks an awful lot like the Armenian melon that they call Armenian cucumber. I have never had a bitter Armenian melon in my life. I have grown. I have one that my. I have a picture of my grandson holding. He can. He's probably like four or five years ago. He can barely hold it up. Uh, the thick end is, you know, about as big around. Bigger, like it's about the diameter of like one of those wiffle ball bats that have the big fat barrel. So we'll see. We'll see. But generally speaking, like I said, when. 
when Baker Creek tells you something, you can take it to the bank. Next up. This one, I've kicked around the idea of drawing for several years. It's not new to Baker Creek. It's one of the things that have made a lot of their, their you know, catalogs they'll sell in, on magazine racks and stuff. Like, this alone will sell it. This alone will get people to order stuff. It's a tomato called Brad's Atomic Grape. It is just beautiful. Those of you that are in the uh, video stream, I imagine just looking at this thing, you're like, man, I'd, I'd kind of like to grow that. I don't know why all of a sudden it's moving so fast. Um, well, that did it. <laughs> uh, so I've lost it. That's because I closed the tab. Anyway, Brad, we'll just have to go back to it later. Brad's Atomic Grape is uh, just this beautiful tomato. It's a myriad of colors. And I have actually, like I said, wanted to grow this thing forever. But what has happened to me is that I've always been like, I'm just killing the tomato. I'm just going to murder the tomato. I mean, it's going to get blight. It's going to die. Why buy these expensive seeds? Get all excited about this. I had figured out some things that would do well for me. Why don't I just do that? And so I've never actually tried it before. Now with the aspirin trick, I'm going to see if it'll work. And again, I think you guys that have some level of a business that sell at farmer's markets and all, you know, when I lived in, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, they had a pretty decent farmer's market, and it was close to where I lived, so I went all the time. But what I would see is like 30 different booths, and everybody had just plain Jane tomatoes. And so everybody in Hot Springs, Arkansas grew tomatoes, so they never sold any. I think if you have this, you're going to get people to come take a look. I think if you have restaurant customers, my God, I can tell you there is not a chef that has some sort of salad or thing like that on their menu that would not freaking drool over these things if you can get enough production out of them to make a supply. Or even if you can have a seasonal kind of pulse of them through. This is a way to differentiate yourself, and it looks freaking awesome. It looks Now, how do they taste? Again, usually when Baker Creek says something, it's true. They supposedly have a great taste. They have a very interesting, to me, interior. It's kind of like an olive-colored interior. And uh, let me see if I can find the image that has that right there. It's like a green olive color. That would just look on a plate, on, in a salad. Absolutely fantastic. Totally a differentiating product. And just something that not everybody has. Now, here's another thing that I know a lot of you guys are doing because it's kind of like printing money. A lot of you guys, what you're doing is you're, you're doing plant propagation. It, and I've been talking to my, my granddaughter about this. She's probably going to have very soon, probably next year, I'm guessing, a full-on plant production business. I've been baiting her a little bit with that, with her schooling, telling her that Papa is happy to help her start a business. Papa will not run her business for her. He will not write her copy for her. He will help her, but he won't do it. He will not take her orders. He will not do her inventory. He will not ship her product for her. She can't afford for Papa to do that. She won't make any money if she does that. So I'm kind of egging her on toward 
starting some kind of, especially perennials, because I have so many things here that are easy to propagate, little website, learn the basics, that type of thing. But I'm like, you have to learn math, reading and writing really good, and when you can do those things, Papa can teach you Excel, and we can build the site, and we can learn all about that. So that's where we're pushing her. But what I tell her, and I'm telling you right now, producing plants is like printing money. Whether you sell them or not, if you produce them and you sell them, there is nothing you can produce at home without equipment, you know, any specialized equipment really, just some very basic stuff. Nothing you can do like that that you can make as much of a return on your time and investment for. Think about taking something like a cutting off a goji plant, putting it in some wet soil in the shade, wait three weeks and sell it for five bucks or grow it out for a few months and sell it for 20 What else can you make that kind of an ROI on? And if you're not selling them, if you don't make it and you want it, you have to buy it. So instead of going out and buying plants, like I talked about during the seed starting thing, five, six bucks a plant, if you could make plants and you have 50 cents a plant into it, that's like every time you put a plant in the ground and it grows for you, it's like putting five bucks back in your pocket. So it's like printing money. Now, I'm going to tell you, If you're going to be selling tomatoes, peppers, and things like that, annuals, especially locally, you want things that you can show people what they look like next door, Facebook Marketplace, whatever, that they can't go get from Home Depot or Lowe's. Not just you want yours to be less, you want yours to stand out, be unique, totally unique. Like, I can't get, because what that says is everything you have is special, even if it's just the same thing, like the other stuff they could go get there. So now it costs less and it's better. Now I'm going to buy from my local person because it takes a lot to get people to think that way. All right, moving on from Brad's Atomic. Great. This is a new one for me. I am going to have to put in another order uh, to, uh, to, to be able to grow this this year. This is something I found in the book after it came, but it's a new kind of okra. It is known, I'm going to try to read this uh, for you, but it is known as... Necruma 1010 okra. Like most okras, this is out of Africa is where it's originally from. It is called tree okra. It is from the African nation of Ghana. The pods are tender, deep green. They're a little bit kind of shorter and fatter in shape than your typical okra. Otherwise, they look like okra. But if you are in a, a climate where it doesn't freeze... This is a perennial okra. It, it, it would not be here in Texas. It would freeze and die as we go into late fall. But if you were living in somewhere like a zone 9 or 10 and you don't get any frost, you have an okra that literally will carry over into the next season. In a single season, it can grow up to 12 feet tall. This is very interesting to me for a reason that has nothing to do with the okra itself. I grow some okra every year. If I break down and finally take the plunge and go into freeze drying, that may really pay off for me because the one thing that I really do like uh, with okra is a freeze-dried okra. I think it's one of just the best snacks you could ever eat. It loses a lot of that mucilage and stuff like that. Um, but I don't have one yet, and, and it's not because, I, I mean, I can make a deal uh, with the people that make them with Harvest Right, and I can get one for free. It, that, that deal's hanging. But if I'm not going to use it, then I'm not going to take it. That's kind of where I'm at with it. 
And it, do I want to add another hobby to my life? Maybe I do. If I'm gonna, I'm gonna start growing asparagus too again. So those two would both make good fodder projects for that. But this particular plant, to me, no matter what, I grow okra mainly on the side of my garden that gets clobbered with sun, that doesn't get enough shade from the building in the afternoon. I grow okra in those beds, and they provide a dappled shade. And if it's too much shade, I just go and prune some of the leaves out to let the light through. The idea that I can grow an okra that's, I don't care if it's 8 foot, let alone 12, and have that by the middle of the hottest time of the year is a shade companion plant for the rest of my plants. That alone, that alone makes it something that I want to give a shot to. The idea that it's perennial and basically can become an okra tree, for those of you who live in the right climate, I find that very intriguing as well. I will also tell you, if you, if you are a market gardener, or a you know, farmer's market type person, or a CSA person, or anything like that. Stories sell plants even when they taste the same. And stories sell food even when it tastes the same. When you have a unique hook, when you're talking to someone that stops by your booth, or one of your customers, and you can talk to them about what this is. If you have chefs as customers, if you give them a story that they can put in right into a menu that results in more orders you will get more orders because they get more orders. So I, I think this is one really worth checking out. Again, I don't know much about it other than what I've read, but the idea of a new, you know, new, new okras are not something that comes along very often. This is not a, it does not have a huge number of reviews, but the reviews that are there, thought out, well-written, 4.7 out of 5 stars, so it's probably worth taking a shot at. But there's something else about this okra and I don't know that I would try it with any any other okra because the texture leads me to believe it wouldn't be good. And that is that this okra supposedly, and again, we'll have to try it, but I've never been steered wrong by uh, Baker Creek before, has edible leaf. So it's a two-production uh, crop. And it, it can also be pruned to maintain lower and bushier habitat. Those two things seem to play together really well. So this might be one that you want to check out. Now, moving on. I probably am going to butcher the pronunciation of this plant because it's really new and I've never heard anybody else say it and I couldn't find anybody reviewing it in a video to at least copy what they said and pretend that I know. But I would say Chi Jimmy Sai, Chi Jimmy Sai, C H I J I M I S A I Chi Jimmy Sai is what you would call this plant. It is a stand-in for spinach, both as a cooked plant and a raw plant. It is a hybrid. It is a cross between two other plants. And those two other plants are totsoy, which I really like, but has kind of that more cabbage type of a background flavor, cabbage kale background flavor, uh, and another plant called katasuna. Katasuna is another Asian green, so it's a cross between two Asian greens, it is supposed to have a, a flavor very similar to spinach, yet the stalks are supposed to be more like the taste of tatsoi. Both of those I love, so that's a great thing. The bigger thing in this climate, it is both cold tolerant and heat tolerant. So it should be a plant that I can grow through the majority of my summer and get some yield from, 
And if it fades a little bit at the highest heat, that's when like my water spinach and all is coming in like crazy. So that'll be fine at that point. But since it's cold tolerant, it also should go into the fall, maybe even in past the first frost, etc., to go along with other greens that can do that like Swiss chard. So I had actually never heard of this plant before. Uh, as far as I know, it's brand new to to, uh, to to Baker Creek this year. Again, it's Chi Jimmy Sai as best I can do with it. I, by the way, if you're on the audio, I have links to all of this stuff in the show notes today. It's a 4.8 out of five star review, 69 five star, 12 four star reviews. So it should be a plant relatively easy to grow and um, should be highly, highly productive. And again, for those of you growing for a profit, stories sell. Stories sell. So if you're able to explain this plant to like a chef customer and they're able to write that into their menu in a compelling way that makes people interested and intrigued because... I'll just put it this way when I'm, when I'm talking this way about chefs and restaurants and sales. And John Dowie here can tell you all about that. He makes his living selling to chefs and restaurants. Have you ever been to a restaurant before and read a menu item and like, ah, it seems like some might be interesting. But when you read what was in it, there was an ingredient or a story behind an ingredient or something like that. And you're like, I've never tried that. I'm going to order this thing just because that's in there. That's a hook. And so... If you're growing for that purpose, I think it's important to be able to tell that story to your chef in a way that makes them understand that they can tell that story. Or to you know the housewife that wants to tell a story to her family or her next-door neighbor or what have you. But for me, I just want it because I think it's going to be a fantastic, low-maintenance, highly nutritious, delicious green. And honestly, I only eat so many tomatoes and peppers and things like that. Most of my... Uh, vegetable side of my diet is leafy greens because it's almost no carbohydrates yet it has a significant amount of flavor and fiber contribution uh, minerals micronutrients etc and I, I just like having some variety in my life I no matter how much I love the idea of carnivore and I know that it works I'm just not going to be hundred percent there and these are the type of things that I like to consume uh, in my diet so that's why I'm growing it Next up today is one that I just thought I need to I need to put this in. I'm probably gonna on my second order, which is gonna happen right after I'm done today, after putting this together, gonna order at least a packet of these and give them a trial. Uh, they are runner beans. And I've I've always taught you guys about like half runners and scarlet runner and stuff like that. Bill Mollison always said of runner beans, they are the best bean in the world uh, because you can use them at early as a snap bean and long-term as a dry bean. But one of the things I've done, because I do so much vertical gardening and I do so much integrated vertical gardening, and what I mean by that is I might have two different beans and tomatoes uh, on one trellis, and I might have cucumbers and beans on another trellis, and I might have some sort of vining squash, uh, like trombuccino and beans on another trellis, and it's like, where are the beans? I try to grow my beans that are uh, pole beans, not green, red, black, I've never done black, but any color other than like green, because I end up missing a lot of the beans until they're overly matured, because the green just blends in with everything. So like the red Chinese noodle beans stand out. Well, these would stand out. And I love runner beans anyway, because of the pollinators that they attract with those gorgeous red flowers. Runner beans to me are an ornamental plant that makes an edible. 
That, that's what they really are. They're an ornamental that creates an edible. Because they are so beautiful that if you had like an arched, you know, uh, trellis like as like an entry point to a garden area or something like that, you could put honeysuckle or something on it. It's going to be really overgrown. It's going to be, you have to prune it really heavily, etc. Uh, what have you. Or you could put these runner beans on it. It's just as beautiful. It's going to be a lot easier to maintain. Hummingbirds, bees, everything will come to those flowers. And then it will produce food all year. The black pods and the very colorful dry beans that it would produce would be just another level altogether. So that's one I'm going to try. It'll it'll make my second order list. Uh, that's definitely a direct sow thing. So uh, some of the stuff I found after my order went in, well, I just don't have. I'm, I'm going to run out of time to get started if I put another order in. With it because unlike Amazon, like you order from Baker Creek, you're looking like a week and a half, two weeks out. I'm not sure in my climate that I'll get it early enough for it to make it in with everything else. I might order some other stuff like the one that's on the screen right now. But primarily, uh, anything that I order from this point forward in the season is going to be something I can direct sow. Beans are always a direct sow for me. I will tell you one thing about beans, though, before we go on. You may end up wanting to get something like a 100-cell or 140-cell, 10-20 insert or something like that. For beans if you have this following problem. If your garden has accumulated enough of a cutworm population that every time you stick a bean in the ground it comes up and the next day it's laying flat over it looks like somebody cut it with a knife and you get your beans completely wiped out if you will start them in little inserts or something like as small as like little miniature six packs or something um, and let them get just a few days old. Once that, once that 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 stem of the bean gets past its really tender stage, the cutworms will leave it alone. That's one option. Another option is to make yourself like cut out something that's you know round that will easily pull off a bean plant that you could stick in the ground, just maybe a quarter inch or so around your bean seeds when you plant them, and then you can pull them out. I've also been told that you can take a nail and put it right next to your bean so the bean has that so when the cutworm tries to wrap around it he'll bite into the nail. I tried that it didn't work and it was too much of a pain in the ass. So just some additional thoughts there on beans. Uh, but the runner beans I've never had that problem. I think they're just a bit tougher in the stalk right from the point when they come up. In fact, most of my pole beans I never have that problem with. The only type of beans that I have a real bad cutworm problem with are bush beans. So, just a thought on that. Next, somebody asked about this, and I said we would probably talk about it. Said, did you, Jack, did, this is from Smoss, did you try black strawberry tomatoes from Baker Creek? The answer is I have not, and I probably won't this year because I've kind of made my decisions on tomatoes for the year. And I have a bunch of varieties that are going in my tried and true ones, and the Brad's Atomic Grape, and the new giant cluster ones and stuff like that, and a few other pretty reliable things in my area like black cherry. So I probably won't try the black strawberry, but oh my God. There's a reason he asked about it, and it's on my list of things for you guys to know about. This is one of the most beautiful tomatoes I have ever seen. And I don't, I'm not like a freaky tomato guy. I know there's people out there, like tomatoes are their thing. Like, they know all the tomatoes or whatever. I've never really been like that with tomatoes. 
But when you look at that fruit, again, that's a thing that if you're a market gardener, that is going to sell. That is going to command attention. That's going to make people stop and take a look. That's a story that your chef can tell his customers about why they're paying $12 for a freaking salad. And I'm not going to pay $12 for a salad, but I make a lot of salads that would sell for $12 to $20 for myself at home during the summer and the spring and the winter as well, honestly, certainly the fall. But this is just a beautiful, beautiful plant. Multicolored greens, reds, blacks, pinks, purples. All in one tomato and they highly variable from one fruit to the next. It reminds me a lot of indigo rose tomatoes, which I've had good luck with, except it has more of a striping nature to it. Again, this is something, if you had uh, a bowl of these sitting on a table at a farmer's market, will make people at least pull up for a second, take a look, and, 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 and want to know more about how you grew that. If anybody's grown these in the live chat, please let us know because, again, this is one I haven't grown, and I don't know anybody that's grown these. I know people that have grown the Brad's Atomic Grape, and they have gotten the coloration and the striation out of it uh, that, that is promised. I have never seen anybody grow these. I've seen these in nothing uh, but a catalog so far. They are a very new plant or new seed as far as I know anyway. Uh, but again, they're called black strawberry, and they're just absolutely gorgeous. Now, I don't grow a lot of corn. I have some beds that are kind of early in their development, uh, and with good organic fertilizer, I could probably grow some corn in them. I, I might grow something like this just to just to put a picture of it on freaking Instagram and and get followers. I mean, it's that beautiful. It's called Hopi Turquoise Corn. It is a multicolor blue corn. It is absolutely fantastically beautiful as a corn. It's a very old variety of corn, actually. It's just kind of new to the market. Um, Hopi, it's right in the name. It originates from the southwest. It Big ears, uh, 6 to 12 inches long, and, and about a 4 to 5 foot stalk. Relatively short, uh, short day to maturity corn at 90 days. A lot of corns now... 100 to 120 days. This is a 90-day maturity. And because it's an old variety, it may be the variety that you need to be looking at if you want to grow some sort of a flint, ornamental corn, something like that, that has a lot of immunity to corn earworms. These older varieties of corn, when you go to shuck them, they tend to have a very thick, heavy amount of husk around the kernel, making them a little bit more resistant to things like corn earworms. I will also tell you, though, that if you're growing corn at all and you have an earworm problem, what you want to do is get a hold of some BT. That's uh, Bacillus lingosus. It's a bacteria. It's harmless to you. I don't advise you to do it, but you could drink it, and it wouldn't hurt you. You could make it up in a spray bottle, and you could spray it on most of your beneficial insects. It won't hurt them. What it will kill the crap out of is any kind of caterpillar that gets on it. Uh, mosquito wigglers, so it's the same stuff that you throw in, a, in a, a tank or a small pond or something like that where you're having a problem with mosquitoes, just wipes them out. But, I mean, I've thrown it right into my systems. The, the shrimp don't care, the minnows don't care, the fish don't care, the plants don't care, but it wipes out the mosquitoes, and it wipes out corn earworms. The key with corn, though, is using it properly. 
and this is how you use it. You mix your BT in your sprayer right when your plant first starts putting ears on. And you spray, specifically spray the, the ears themselves in the area around it. And then every two weeks till harvest, if you spray with that stuff, it's very inexpensive. It is not harmful to your beneficials. There may be one or two that can get harmed by it, but it's more of a contact thing. And unless it's like trying to eat your corn, it's not really going to be on a corn ear. So it is, you know, a long time, well-known tactic in organic gardening and farming. And this corn would be, if you're going to try a corn this year and you want to do something unique and different other than a sweet corn, I definitely recommend that you check this out. Here's another one. I'm going to add this to my second order. I love arugula. I grow the crap out of arugula. I love that peppery bite. I love adding it to things like soups. So I don't use any noodles or anything like that. So when you have a soup, you throw a handful of arugula right in at the end and you give it some body, you give it that bite, you give it all of that, you know, salads are good with it, wilted into things like cauliflower rice, great for people on a low-carb lifestyle, great for anybody. The difference with this red dragon arugula is the red. So the vein, the primary veins in the leaf have a kind of a purple-red color I bet John Dowie's already gone, hmm, if I can get enough seed for that, that would make an interesting microgreen. And I would say, uh, John, maybe. I have not grown this yet. I don't know if that red color really shows up at that stage. And it's probably easier to just mix some other red thing into it, at least until seed's available at a higher level. But again, for those of you that are selling like baby greens, young greens, salad greens, what a differentiator. Right, it just has so much beautiful uh, color added to something that's already such a staple in that space, and so I'm growing it because I like I like stuff that looks cool. I don't expect that it's going to be much different in flavor or texture than my typical arugulas, but we'll see. You never know until you trial these things. You know, maybe it will grow longer without getting too bitter into my heat. We'll find out. My, I doubt it. And the reason that I doubt it is in general, when plants add deep, dark color to their leaves, it's so they can gain more thermal gain and they're more cold-tolerant plants. And I've had a lot of plants that have that magenta color. Let's say Hopi Red Diamaranth. Beautiful purple burgundy red color right up until the heat comes and then the color washes right out of it and it's more of a green color because it's like I need to get rid of this I'm too hot now so we'll see but I think it's definitely one worth looking at and again you guys with customer bases totally totally should take a look at this because I think again differentiation is key when it comes to marketing against your competition and whether you think you have competition or not if you're in business you have competition if you have no competition you don't have a market the next one's an eggplant and um, I really am not the guy that likes to grow your big conventional eggplants I like baba ganoush and stuff like that if somebody else makes it Eggplant parmesan is fine, but I can't have the carbs, so if you don't fry it, whatever. And what I really don't like about your larger types of eggplants is usually they need to be salted and bleded before you cook them or they don't taste very good. They have like this alkaline, almost like an ashtray taste. A lot of the smaller, slender, round eggplants are really good just to use straight out of the gate, and they absorb whatever flavor you give them. 
I don't know anything about this eggplant other than what I've read so far. But this is another one. This is getting added to my second order. I found it in the giant crack dealer book. It is called Ensoro Iwia. E-W-I-A. Iwia, I think is how you would say that. Um, it is another plant that is from uh, Af- the African continent. This is from Ghana. It's very popular there. It's said to have been in use for over 150 years. It translates, that, however you say that last word, Iwia, and Soro Iwia, to drought or heat resistant. Okay, so I'm sold. I've got a small eggplant that doesn't need to be uh, salted in order to use. It's an heirloom that's been around for centuries. Uh, it's something i never grown before. It is not really highly available in the United States. They actually got this plant um, from a dude named Solomon of uh, Call to Nature Permaculture, who's working to regenerate interest in this variety. Uh, he's from Ghana. So this is something that probably needs a seed bank built up to preserve it. You know, everybody's familiar, I think, today, at least that would be in my audience, with this idea of inflation and you see a dollar in 1913 and today it's like two cents. And that's not even really an analogy. That's just the way it is. Like two cents today, uh, you know, there's about two cents of value left to what your great grandfather could get with a dollar in, in the early 1900s. But you know where that works like eerily well? If you look at all the seed variety that we had around the year 1900, and the seed varieties that are left, we're down to about two to three cents worth. Now, that's actually improving, unlike the dollar, because more and more people are doing work like this. But we as backyard gardeners, small market gardeners, etc., we can do do the work of building up these seed banks and preserving these, these varieties, because what you'll find is a lot of these varieties, I might grow it and be like, this rocks, it's so productive. And you might be in central Oklahoma, not even that far away, and you might be like, this sucks, but this other variety works. And having all of this inventory, all of this stuff available to pick and choose from, so that we all can grow what's regionally best for us is a great idea. It looks a lot like small tomatoes. And, you know, uh, eggplant and tomato are both nightshade uh, plants. Looks really cool. Grows into this bright red color. Again, it would be definitely a differentiator, but you might want to tell your CSA customers what it is so they don't try to use it like a tomato because they may not like it if they do. But I definitely recommend you check this one out. And if you grow it, definitely grow some of it, kind of sequestered from other eggplant a little bit, gives them you know good spacing, at least one or two beds away, uh, and save seed from it. Save seed from it and kind of you know send it out. Spread it around. Do, do something with it so that people uh, will start growing it as well and saving seed. Because when we lose a variety like this, it's gone. And you need somebody basically to go to Ghana to get new seed stock for it. So we have it here in the States. It's available. Definitely check it out. The next one, I, again, I'm always looking for stuff to be greens that I can grow in my summer. And the reason I'm always looking for that is my summer is brutal. It's just hot. We had something like 
out of a 90-day period this year, something like 84 of those days broke 100 degrees. And we got almost no rain. Thanks to my new irrigation systems, everything did wonderful last year. But, you know, the heat does what the heat does. You can't water away the heat. You can shade some of the heat out, but the plant still needs enough sun. But you cannot, if the air temperature is 104 at at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night, and it stays over 100 until 2 o'clock in the morning, which it often does here, you can't make that go away. This is called mountain spinach, and it's a Japanese mountain spinach. It's actually a variety of amaranth, and this is another one I'm going to go ahead and add to my second order. I have plenty of time to grow this. It says it likes partial sun. I have a perfect little niche area to grow some of this stuff in then. Uh, Toward the uh, west side of my garden is where it gets the most western shade from the building on the uh, west side of it. And we'll, we'll tuck some in there and see how it does. Even though it's an amaranth, it's supposed to taste so much like spinach that if you gave it to somebody, they wouldn't know. And I've, I've not tried growing this, but it's supposed to have the hardiness of Swiss chard, which does fine. Like regular green Swiss chard grows straight through my summers with no problems. So this is definitely worth checking out. And if you look at how big the leaves are and the volume of it, again, you CSA, market gardener types. My one caution with any green, but especially an amaranth green. Amaranth greens in general need to be harvested and delivered to the customer, and the customer needs to be using it really quick, like a day or two at the most. They do not travel well, and it's probably why you won't ever see stuff like this in the produce section of a supermarket where the food is a week or two after harvest before you touch it. So this would be something like if you have chefs, like you might have like a special order or something where like they have it on the menu for a certain thing once or twice a week, especially if it's going to be used in a salad and raw. It's going to be cooked. There's a lot of other options that you can explore uh, there as well. But this is not one I'm like super excited about, but it is one that I want to trial, and it may end up being one of the really uh, kind of winners of the year. Like I, I said at the very beginning, and I want you to think about this all the way through, all I'm hoping every year when I pick you know, 15 to give to you. Some of you guys will grow some stuff I don't. We'll find out some things collectively together about it. But the other thing that I hope is I find, you know, one or two or three that are just, like, super winners. And if I get one a year, if I get one a year that I'm like, I'm going to grow this every season forever or until I get bored with it, that's a win. You know, when I found the Ping Tongue eggplant, I'm like, it looks like sausages growing off a damn plant. The plant's you know, two and a half foot tall by two and a half foot wide, and it's got like 30 freaking ripe eggplants on it. That was a win. When I found the uh, the uh, uh, Indian snake bean that's really a gourd, and you get this four foot long, big around as your wrist plant, you peel it and it tastes like green, the best green bean you ever ate, and no pests do anything to it, that was a win. You know, maybe some, a few of these will be that kind of a win. This is one I actually am going to grow this year, and it's one of those ones that I did the thing, where you order more seeds than you can use. I ordered this last year, and I never got any of them planted because I just got to the point where it's too late in the year and it's too hot now. Uh, it's a sunflower called Red Torch, and it's a Mexican sunflower, right? 
Mexican sunflower is actually a great forage plant. So one of the concerns is there are critters that will eat the plant itself, which is a good thing if you want to feed it to like rabbits or whatever, but it's a bad thing in that more insects or little rodents or something might eat it on you. So we'll see how it does for me. It should do just fine planted in a polyculture. I'm also starting this from seed indoors. I think I started like eight of them yesterday. And I'll let them get up enough so at least they're not in a position where you're going to have like the, the cutworms just taking it out before it even gets a chance to go. But they are, it's a beautiful sunflower. It is not a seed sunflower. Mexican sunflower in general isn't. The seeds look very similar to marigolds. It gets a lot bigger than a marigold. Each plant produces a ton of these red flowers. They would be a great cutting flower, something like that. Um, it should be about, they're about five foot tall uh, plants. And it's also a heavy pollinator attractor. People think sunflowers are great for attracting pollinators. It's not really been my experience. Bumblebees love them, but honeybees and mason bees I have not found on most seed varieties uh, sunflower at a high level. Black oil a little bit. The big edible seeds, though, not so much for me. I'm hoping this will be a sunflower that also brings in a lot of pollinators and I'm trialing it this year because as I put together the cover crop course, which will be the next paid course from Home Food Systems, I am not just doing straight up the season ended, put down a cover crop, kill it in the spring and plant in. I'm also doing a lot with interplanting being worked into the course for having additional ground cover, additional pollination, additional biomass, additional carbon cycling. And I'm hoping this will be a great plant for that, especially in the southern climates where we can use a little bit more shade cover and help having a five-foot plant that allows dappled shade and you figure out where you want it to go in your garden and when you want it to provide shade for some of those other plants to give them some relief. Really a great deal, plus a beautiful plant. And always try to make some dadgone room in your gardens for flowers. Just not forget about the wonderful things they do to bring in your pollinators. Okay? Forget about that for a minute. Let, let that go for a minute and focus on um, just their value to, like, appearance. Just being able to go outside and seeing your garden bustling with flowers. It feels good. I know I'm a survivalist. I'm a dude. Right? I'm a, a guy that's, you know, done his fair share of martial arts and all. He's supposed to be tough. You're not supposed to like, flowers are cool, man. But they are. Okay? Like, flowers have their place. I remember I was watching some documentary one time, and there was this guy, he was kind of a survivalist guy. He was part of Bo Greitz's thing that he tried to do called Almost Heaven. And the guy interviewing him, I think it was, uh, God, I can't think of his name now, Louis Thoreau, who's out of the UK. And he's kind of like one of these guys that he plays the fool when he interviews people to get them to show themselves. And he's, he made asses out of so many people. And when he went and he interviewed all these preppers... That he actually came away with it going, these guys are not so bad after all, and they, they seem to have their stuff together, and they seem to understand the world, and maybe, they're, maybe I should be more like them. So it kind of, I know backfired, but it didn't get the result it usually did from him. But he was talking to this dude, and the guy was deeply involved. He was a Vietnam vet, but he was one of the Vietnam vets that came back and was like, we should not be over there. And he was involved in the protest movement. 
and he, uh, but he was all into guns and stuff as well. So Louis says to him, he said, "I uh, so you used to put flowers in guns, right? Because we all know that you know the hippies putting the flowers in the guns, of the National Guard and what have you." And the guy goes, "Yeah." He goes, "But then later on, I figured I was better to put bullets in guns." So flowers have their place. I don't know if it's in guns, but it definitely is in your garden. Uh, next up, this is the last one I have from Baker Creek for, for you today, but I do have a bonus one that you want to stay tuned for. But this is called uh, Serpenti de, de Sicilia, which means uh, the Sicilian snake or snake of Sicily or serpent of Sicily. This is a gourd. I actually learned about this a couple of years ago, and I did grow some, but not a lot. But I know tons of you guys, just like I do, deal with squash vine borers. And I have heard from some of you that said, I've even tried the Trumbachino squash, and I got a few, but the vine borers got them anyway. This is a gourd that is grown extensively in Italy. It is a mainstay at the table. It is not a shitty gourd that if you, per if you pick it young enough, it will be edible. It is grown as a vegetable for its own sake. It is immune to vine boards. It's immune, it's immune as a bottle gourd or something, or a loofah gourd or something like that. They just don't go into the stem. The stem is really dense. It's really thin. It's got nothing in it for them. I have never seen squash bugs really do anything to it either. I've never seen stink bugs cause any problems. So your typical squash pests don't seem to have any effect on it. And then there are some gourds that are susceptible to cucumber mosaic virus because we're all in the cucumberta world over there, right? Um, I have never seen any damage to this plant at all. The only way I think you can kill this plant is to give it so little water that it dies of drought. It is just tough as nails, and many people in Italy actually prefer it to zucchini. For an Italian to prefer a gourd to zucchini, that's not usual. So this is a delicious plant, and a lot of people, the way I actually found out about this plant, when I was uh, really pushing the, uh, the Tromachino zucchini, a lot of people thought it was the same as this, because it has a very similar appearance, but it is a different plant altogether, It is incredibly productive. One, two, three vines of this on some trellises, probably more than you ever want to eat. Uh, it also does well as a dehydrated vegetable. I've, of course, not tried freeze-drying because I don't do that yet, uh, but it probably would work well for that as well. I've never tried blanching and freezing, but that may work well for it as well. So if you've struggled to produce a squash and you want that in your life, then this would be the way to go. Okay, so here's my bonus one for you guys today. And I'm not going to play this video. I'm just going to bring up a screenshot, and I'm going to tell you some things about it in case you want to buy it. It is known as ivory gourd. It is also known as perennial cucumber. This is something important to know, though. It is considered an invasive species. I'm not worried about that. I'm just not. We have wild form ivy gourd, and I guess it's all some level of ivy gourd on our property right here in Texas right now. I've had this plant to show up and trellis itself up live oak trees. Out in the middle of a field otherwise other than that tree, 
found a little niche from a seed or something, and usually they come back every year because they're perennial. They come back from the root as long as the root doesn't, as long as they're deep enough, the root doesn't freeze solid in a freeze. Okay. However, the ones that grow wild on my property, I would not eat that. It would taste like crap. And the plant structure leaf form itself does not look anything like a cucumber. There are certain varieties of these. I don't even think they're selectively bred. They've just been selected to because they're good to eat. They produce what looks like a small pickling cucumber. The longer you leave it, the more it will gravitate toward turning red, which you see the one on the right side of your screen there that has begun to turn red. They taste like cucumber. As they turn red, they taste more like cucumber mixed with watermelon. They are edible raw, pickled, or cooked. They're using a lot of curries. They're very popular, extremely popular uh, in India and that part of Asia and what have you. So, if you grow it, you could be flirting with the department of making you sad. I don't know that I would go out on YouTube and scream to the high heavens that I have it, but I wouldn't really worry about it because my response to it's invasive is, yay, hell, you're right, look at invaded. Right? I mean, just, <laughs> just, just think about it that way. Um, but you need to be careful with what you're buying. I found this from the, I have a link to this video. I found this guy's video. He said, I'm selling roots. Email me. Instead of emailing him, I searched for this plant on eBay. I found a listing for it. It turned out it was from the same guy who had the YouTube channel. So I knew what I was getting. So I, I bought it from him on eBay. And it was like he had two in inventory and now they're all gone. So he's out of stock. And I'm imagining he's probably at the end of season harvesting as much root as he's comfortable with from his stash. So he probably won't have any more. Now, if you go on eBay and you search for Ivy Gourd Seed, you're going to find both seeds and roots from various suppliers. All I can say is read the reviews. They're probably going to be fine. But I don't know that. There's no way I could know that. So you have to individually, case by case, figure this out. I'm betting it produces just fine from seed, but when you have something that you can clone with root cuttings, it makes a lot of sense to clone it with root cuttings. So if you, I'm going to pull up the eBay listing here. And you can see there's an awful lot of centers, both seeds and roots. I don't know how hard it is to propagate from seed. I would imagine since like this guy's selling 75 seeds, for 550, if half of them germinate, if a quarter of them germinate, you're good. Uh, I bought one root. I've got it in a pot. I'm growing it out. You can see some other people producing roots. The people producing roots are proud of them. That one root right there is 50 bucks for one root. I think I paid 20 for mine. Um, this, the roots here, 27.99, and I don't. And you're getting one root, even though the picture's three. This looks. Very similar to what I bought. It's a different producer, but if I was going to buy one, I would probably buy this one out of what's listed on eBay. It's from uh, T.Farms. Unfortunately, last one available. So this seems like a plant. Uh, let me get that one up since it opened a new window. But that's the listing I'm talking about right there. This seems like kind of the words out on this plant now. 
the the video, the dude that did the video, he's all in on it. He was talking about how you can even eat the the tendrils, the young vines are good eating and have a cucumber flavor. So if you like cucumber, they would be good for that. He was kind of drooling a little bit as he was picking them. So uh, some of that might be salesmanship, but a perennial cucumber that is not affected by cucumber beetles uh, or other things that, that bother cucumber plants that will come back every year as long as the ground doesn't freeze all the way through. So how did he ship mine? He pruned off a nice chunk of root. He wrapped it in uh, paper towel. He put it in a Ziploc bag, and he left some of the top growth trimmed off, sticking up out of the bag. My guess is that will have no trouble making it through your winters. Probably in the uh, crisper drawer of your refrigerator, the same way that you would store something like uh, Jerusalem artichoke tubers and have some hold over till the next spring. So next year, assuming this works out for me, I will dig up some root. I will save some root, and I will leave some root in the ground, and I will deep mulch around that root, and we'll see how it does. But I, I find it hard to believe that that's not going to be a win. And if I had to have everything, even though everything, like this was all about Baker Creek, I'm going to bet that if there is a big winner for me in my trials of new things this year, it's going to be a perennial cucumber. And I'm also thinking ahead to my granddaughter's eventual business, assuming she really wants to do what she says she wants to do, to being able to have a high-dollar, root-clonable product, because what we can do is make, 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 make lots of them, right? And uh, maybe we can drive that price down a little bit, because I think a little piece of root for 20 bucks is pretty expensive. Since the supply is so limited, that's the way it's going to be. But, you know, five bucks a piece for root cuttings? Come on, that, that's, you should be making money on that. Uh, I'm not faulting anybody for charging what they can get, uh, but I see long-term that price getting driven down because it seems like a very easy plant to propagate. With that, that's through everything. I encourage you to try some new things every year. I think it's a very sensible approach um, to, to not try to plant you know 50 new varieties of crap every year. To not try to have your garden full of like 800 varieties. I know there are people that get really excited about it and they watch a video and the guy's like, I'm a permaculture dude and I've got 937 varieties of vegetables growing and all. The older I get, the more experienced I've become. The longer I've done this, the happier I am producing 10 things that are like clockwork every year. My wife eats them, I eat them, my grandkids eat them, my kids eat them, my guests eat it, and I know I can count on it. But I will never give up a little bit of, you know, partaking of the addiction every year that is catalogs like this, because it's part of the fun in doing what we do. And like I said, if every year you find just one new real win, over a decade, you're adding 10 varieties of new things that become that core, and 6 becomes 10, and 10 becomes 20, and there is a limit to how much everybody really needs. And there are even some things that maybe I don't grow every year, like alternate for some crop rotation and stuff like that. Hope you enjoyed today's show. These are one of my favorite types of shows to do. I know that had I done a show today on, like, why the world is falling apart, uh, how many times Joe Biden shit his pants whatever, that 
I would end up with a lot more people in a live stream and a lot more downloads and you know I'd be in if I whenever I do an episode like that I pretty much spend the entire week in the top 10 in category on iTunes charts where you know like last week I was 14 instead of in the top 10 I understand that but what my goal with the survival podcast is has always been and will always be is to empower you and learning what you can grow and, and, and giving an example of how to try these new things and encouraging this and developing relationships built on this and markets and businesses built on this, that has a much more dramatic impact in your life to who, than compared to who the next president's going to be. Uh, whether you believe that or not, it's true. And the, these types of shows are things you can do. There's nothing we talked about today that's not in your circle of control. I don't have any land. Go talk to some people. You'll find some land and grow some food and quit your bitching, right? There's so many of these people that I follow on TikTok, right? When I heard about TikTok, I thought it was stupid. And then I found there are some creators on TikTok that are really educating people. But every one of them has this whole list of assholes that are like, I can't do that. That's too hard. It costs too much money. And I'm like, you bitches don't want solutions. You want excuses, and, 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 and I don't want to do shows for people that want excuses. I want to do shows for people that want solutions. We'll look at how bad things are once in a while. Because if there has ever been a time in our lives that what's wrong in the world should have you growing your own food and developing your own markets, developing your own business, developing your own communities, exchanging product with your neighbor, seed swapping, making plants, selling plants, giving plants away, starting community... Like, the shit that's going wrong in the world should be driving you to do this. It really should be. But if you can do it without being driven, great. And if not, every once in a while, I'll give you a show that will drive you. Uh, I've got John on tomorrow. I'm not sure if I have one or two interviews this week. If we don't have two interviews this week, Wednesday I will give you blood and guts. There is some stuff going on that we should talk about. But what it should lead you, right, if you listen to that show Wednesday, okay, if you listen to that show Wednesday, and it kind of forces you to like really go, man, things are bad, then what you should do is go right back to this show from this Monday and listen to it again and pick some things out and start growing your own food. And then go back and listen to the show we're going to do with tomorrow with John Bush on building freedom cells. And if you're going to build a freedom cell, then you need something of value to bring to your cell. And being able to produce food is a thing of value. And even if everybody in your, your group, like some people say, well, what if everybody in the group is producing food? Sure. Do they have Brad's Atomic grape tomatoes? No. Then they might value plants or seeds for that variety because they don't have it. Are there a lot of people that grow gardens but they don't start growing seeds? Yeah. You know what that is? That's an opportunity for you. Your cell's easy. So these plants cost $6 a piece at Walmart and Home Depot and Lowe's now, and I sell them for $1.50 a piece. And mine are better, and they come in varieties you can't get there. right? So that's another thing of value to exchange. Please be thinking about this, as I know some of you crave the doom and gloom. You crave the blood and guts. You want to hear how bad things are. We all know things are bad. Knowing what to do about that. That's what the Survival Podcast has always been about. I want to hit a few uh, questions, comments. i got like four here. And while I'm doing this, if you don't see your question come up, last call for questions. Uh, first one from Rob Owen. Just moved four acres all land, Central Maryland. Best way to start my garden for this spring with such little time. Cut, sod, flip over, or just or till just for the first time. 
You can certainly... I am not a person that will slay you for tilling, especially just a first time. You can sill, uh, till. You can cut and flip sod. However, you're in Maryland. Your, your plant out date is probably something like, I'm going to guess, April 15. That's a couple, three months. The easy answer Get a hold of some really good compost or just leaf mulch. You know, if you can break up some leaves, get leaves from your neighbors, whatever. Spread it out in the area of the garden you want. Underneath it, throw down, uh, you know, a, 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 a bunch of, like, cheap chicken food or grain or something like that to attract worms. Throw a tarp over it a little bit bigger than the dimensions of what your garden needs to be. Keep it wet and tarped. And it'll probably be dead or almost all dead by the time it's time for you to plant your garden. Then you can dig it over one time to establish it. If you don't have time for that and you're dealing with all lawn, do not think if you put a raised bed in that the grass won't grow up to the raised bed because it will. If you do that, I would do at least at the bottom of the bed, make sure the bed is deep enough to plant and get enough growth of your roots into for several seasons before it needs to get into the subsoil, and do at least a double layer of weed blocker. A double layer of weed blocker if you're going to do that at the bottom of a raised bed. If you don't, again, if you, if you don't want to take a raised bed approach, you want to grow in ground, and in Maryland your soil is probably pretty damn good, and it's probably a good place to do it, and you don't have time to kill your grass with a tarping, personally, if it can be done affordably, I would rent a sod cutter, and I would I would use a sod cutter to, because it is really a bitch to break sod with a shovel. If, if it's good, you know, if it's good lawn sod, it's tough to break up, uh, really, really tough. And it would probably be worth, mark out your beds, bring your sod cutter in, cut larger than that, and do something with your rows in between your beds. If you're going to do like five, six rows, and you're going to have strips in between them, I would sod cut the whole thing. I would remove all the sod, and the beauty of a sod cutter is you can take that sod to other places where your lawn's not so good and put it down and actually where you want grass, make grass, or maybe give it to your neighbors or something like that that have bare spots that are trying to fix or something like that. Uh, your life will just be easier. They're, they're, you know, the average size garden somebody's going to put in for their first season. It will not take long to cut all that sod. Uh, it's something you can rent on a Saturday and return Saturday afternoon if it can be done affordably. Otherwise, you're into, into you know, digging it out yourself or tilling. The issue with tilling, if you have a lawn like that, it's probably perennial. And tilling will only do so much because there will be so many grass rhizomes that will be in that tilled soil if you're going to till it then this is what I would do. I would till it as soon as possible, as soon as the ground's not frozen, which is probably the first warm couple days you have. Even if it's frozen you know, down deeper, the top deep enough to till, four to six inches will be there. I would till it, and I would do what I said anyway. I would put down like a big pile of leaves, something to feed your worms, maybe some horticultural molasses, and I would tarp it until you're ready to plant it. Because if you don't rot out those rhizomes, they're just going to all come back anyway. So, um, you know, that answer would have been a lot easier if you asked it in October. But we all are where we all are. Uh, one step closer says, any ground cherry recommendations? There's no new ground cherries available uh, from Baker Creek, but Aunt Molly's has been my favorite and my most productive. 
It's been around forever. Everybody grows it. Everybody likes it. And it just works really good. And Baker Creek and a bunch of other people have it. Um, would you be willing to do a review of the plants you grew last year from your seed buy? A yearly species review. I don't think I did this show last year. I think I did the last show I did, like the Baker Creek catalog breakdown of all the things I've grown this year, I think it was 2022. And I would be happy to, my only caution is, just because something didn't work well for me in my climate doesn't mean it wouldn't work well for you in your climate. Uh, but it might not be a good, bad idea for maybe to me to do a segment on a show where it's like everything that I tried in 2022 and everything that was a okay and everything that was a big winner. I, I like that idea, uh, so I'll, I'll try to give that a shot. And Legendary Farm and Homestead says... Are you growing any winter squash? I'm trying the red curry Japanese squash from Baker Creek this year, and I'm excited about it. That looks like a great squash. Uh, Galaxy Day of Scenes looks like another great squash. I have a massive problem with vine borers. So the Trumbachino has become my go-to both for summer and winter squash. When you let Trumbachino get full-sized and mature, it tastes an awful lot like butternut, the entire neck from the bulb up to the top of the stem is no seed in it. It's all flesh. It's extremely easy to prepare. And so I have really stopped beating my face into the world of the vine borer and gone exclusive to that as my you know winter squash variety. So it's a dual purpose squash and it's why I love it. And it's one of the big wins that I've had uh, from that. And I don't see... I don't see any more questions, so I think we're going to wrap up there. I appreciate you guys tuning in today. I hope you like these fun shows like this. Uh, I know it was a little discombobulated getting started a little bit late today at the beginning, so I apologize for a little bit of a rough intro, uh, but I think we had a good show. I want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can do your online shopping starting where? tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is a new one. Never had this one for you before, and it fits today's uh, topic very well. These are two-inch nursery pots for seed starting. I have gotten to the point where most of you, as soon as I say seed starting, the first thing that probably pops into your head is, well, red Solo cups, right? Because I've used them so much. I mean, the beauty of a red Solo cup, you can go to, to Costco and you can buy a giant huge thing of them for like 12 bucks and they end up being like a penny a piece you drill holes in them you've got a, a perfect you know kind of four inch pot they're right about the size of the pots that you buy from home depot and lowe's from like bonnie's etc um they fit right in the, the the carriers that you can get for free if you ask the when they use them up there uh they'll usually give them to you so they're convenient for that but they take up a lot of space and I have a ton of seed starting happening indoors this year. Right behind the camera where you can't see it, there's a rack that I built for fish tanks. The center part of that rack, I've turned it into a seed starting shelf this year with the lights that were already there and everything. And if I do the Red Solo cups, I can fit about 24 of them in there. I can fit almost 100 of these in there. So it's a space-saving issue. Now, what I noticed is that the pictures in the Amazon review don't give anything for scale. So I'm going to switch over to where you can see me here and show you. They are quite small, but they're very durable feeling. They do not feel like something that's going to crack on you after one use. How many uses, I don't know. 
but they're about 20 cents a piece. So 100 of them is right out of 20 bucks. So they're very, very affordable. And I, I know these will give you at least three or four cycles. So that might mean two years if you do start seeds twice a year uh, in the same container. Because these will probably pop a plant out, new one goes right in. To give you scale on them for some other things, though, this is your standard industry six-pack. This is like your 144 count uh, or 72 count to a 1020 tray is what these are. And it is a little bit bigger in volume, but about the same height. So these are super cheap. They're like paper. If you get two uses out of them, you're probably cursing them by the end of the second one because they crack and start falling apart. If you compare them to something like this guy here, this is your large six-pack size. They're about the same size. They just barely fit inside there, but they don't fit all the way in. But they're a little bit shallower. So that gives you a size comparison. They have a really nice bottom hole um, penetrations in them for, for below surface watering. And what I like about the way they're designed, they have kind of a, a bevel to them. So they have a gap that when you're watering from the bottom, it can get into them. They're actually sold by a company that specializes in products for the hydroponics market. And that's probably why they have that bottom. So not only would it water well from the bottom, these would work good in hydro systems as well. Though I would say if you're going to use it to grow out in hydro or aquaponics or anything like that, then I would grow short-term greens and things like that in here. I would not try to grow a pepper in an aquaponics or a hydroponics system in this. It's just too small of a container. But for seed starting, they are awesome. And because they're flexible, they're, they're like kind of a halfway between rubber and plastic feel. That means when you're trying to get your plants out of them, you can squeeze them and pop them out without cracking the container so you get more uses out of them. Will I get two seasons, three seasons out of these? I don't know yet. I, I just ordered them. I just started a bunch of plants with them yesterday. Uh, I started some plants a couple weeks ago with them. Those guys are off to a great start. So I haven't had any real trouble out of them. Uh, but I won't know longevity. I would say by the end of my first season, I'll be able to comment. But at 20 cents a piece, does it really matter if you need something to start your seeds in? Now... When I, I talked about these on social media recently, people said, why don't you just use a six-pack, Jack? You fill one, boom, it's full six plants. You can move it around. I really like having my plants individually in containers. And the reason I like that is, let's say that this plant is not really thriving. It needs more light than its brothers and sisters. I can move it to where it will get more light. It's getting too much light. I can move it from there. I want to take several of them out to plant but I don't want all of them in a six-pack. Well, pop three out and plant those. Yeah, but now I've got this this container that takes up this much space, and I've got plants half-grown in it. What am I going to do, fill it? And like, When I have individuals, when this guy comes out, I can fill him right back up, put something else in him, and put him right back into the system, or have other plants ready to move and rotate around. So I like the individual container uh, thing. So this is about the smallest I'm willing to go with that to get good grow out, good root balls, etc. And these will do fine for a four to six week grow out of your peppers and tomatoes that are going to transplant. And they will be fine for like a two to three week grow out for some of your larger plants like squashes and all before they get set out. Otherwise, you can just pot them up and you probably won't pot up everything so they save a lot of space. 
the only negative thing I saw in the reviews that wasn't by, well, one of God's special children. Okay, because I always ignore the negative reviews by the special kids. Um, was that they have like an oil on them? They did. They absolutely had like a thin oil coating on the outside of them. Smelling it, the 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 plastic has a petroleum smell. You would expect that plastic's made from petroleum. The oil itself, though, if you like, got it on your fingers and smelled it, it really had no smell. It was very neutral. My estimate is it would be mineral oil. Why would they do that? Well, I don't know if you've ever bought stuff like this, but when you buy stuff like this that sits in a warehouse in Amazon, and since it's not a food or something, they don't care what temperature it's at, it gets moved around, it gets bumped, things get stuck together, and you get get stuff like this, I mean, it's like you break it trying to pull it apart. So by adding that little thin coat of oil, they all just felt, like just fell out of each other. There was no problem separating them. All I did, I threw them all in a bus tub full of hot water, no soap or anything, rinse them in hot water and, and let them dry off, and there was no res residue, it probably wouldn't have hurt anything anyway. But that was like, if I'm nitpicking, given what you're buying, that was the only downside I could see. And again, you're getting about the surface area of a large-scale um, six-pack industry standard uh, without giving up the space you get from the overhang there and having the ability to move them around. And they're 20 bucks a hundred. I also, in the write-up, if you click on it, it will link you straight to the 100 count. Why the 100 count? Because 50, they're 30 cents a piece, and 100, they're 20 cents a piece, and 500, they're 18 cents a piece. So you see where the big price break is. There's no sense in buying 500 until you're sure you like them to save 2 cents a unit. But I bet you you'll find a use for them if you pick up a 100-pack. Remember, you can always support us no matter what you eventually buy if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. These guys are great. They do come from some plant labels and stuff like that as well. My go-to for stuff like this, though, uh, for individual containers, one of the reasons I like the Solo Cups, they're red, black, Sharpie, right on the cup, done. These guys here, buy some white duct tape, and you can make from each inch of duct tape like three strips. You put them right on the side and right on them. And then they're individually labeled. Or, you know, you can use standard marker for a row. When I do that, I'll put, like, ping tongue eggplant 8 and point the arrow the direction the row goes if I'm going to do that. Uh, but if you label them individually, it's a lot easier to know what you're planting when you get to plant them out. With that, we've wrapped it up. Do consider joining the MSB. Do consider shopping at tspaz.com. And if you want to have the best garden results you ever thought you could have and make some of the most valuable compost ever, check out homefoodsystems.com for my course on bioreactor composting. We're up to about 200 students, I think, now, somewhere in that range. Nothing but positive feedback. Take care, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow, where I'll be joined by John Bush from Live Free Academy. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a bed